Hey everyone, this is Kathleen Kinmont from Halloween 4. And you gotta download the new episode of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast because they're doing an episode for Bride of Reanimator, which I am also in. This episode is killer, so download now. Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting mouthpiece of the Southeast. Brandon A. Lane bringing you a new edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast and hot. Damn, we've got a banger of an episode tonight. Kicking off the festivities, we had that incredible introduction you heard at the top of the episode from the former Mrs. Lorenzo Lamas and Halloween 4 luminary, the lovely and incredibly talented Kathleen Kenmont. But in the context of this episode, I think you may better remember her as the bride, as in the bride of Reanimator. That being said, if you can still not deduce all the obvious clues I'm hurling your way, tonight we have an incredible double feature lined up dissecting all things of the film at hand, Bride of Reanimator. But first on the docket, I was lucky enough to sit down this past week with the legendary director and producer, Brian Usna, where we discuss his 40 plus year career in film. But if that isn't enough to get you to click the download button for this episode, later on tonight we'll also bring you a full Bride of Reanimator retrospective. But first... Here's some messages from our sponsors. Hey, assholes! It's me, Boner the Skeleton, mascot of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. Here to sell you some shit you probably can't afford. Are you low on cash? That's not a problem. Sell your children. Sell your blood. Go to the jack-off clinic and give them a sperm sample. We don't care how you get the money as long as you give it to us. Want a t-shirt? Want a sticker or a mug to show that you're a true friend and a member of the Rant Army? Well, guess what? Go to Rant Army Surplus. The link is in the description. And if you don't buy something, then fuck ya! From the shadows of producing to the forefront of the horror world as a director, our guest tonight boasts a 40-plus year career in the film industry and whose body of work includes Society, Return of the Living Dead 3, and the film we're going to be speaking about tonight, Bride of Reanimator. So without further ado, I gladly introduce Brian Usna to the Black, uh, Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. Thank you so much, Brian, for sitting down with us to talk a little bit about what, in my, my estimation, is one of the most underrated sequels of all time, Bride of Reanimator. Thanks, Brandon. Well, my first question, uh, unfortunately, has to do with your longtime collaborator who passed away earlier this year. A long, never forgotten, but a dare to our hearts, Stuart Gordon. I'm curious as to why he did not return to the directing chair from the first film to this film. Well, um, he was pretty busy, and at that time... His career could have gotten, could have really hit the stratosphere. And because we were working on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids then. And he was going to direct it. And so it could have been really big. 
his agent thought it wasn't good for him to do sequels. <laughs> okay, well, my follow-up to so that, there was, did you always have your eye on the directing chair, or were you just the default, like, well, if Stuart's not going to do it, I'm going to be the one to take over the slot? Oh, it's a little more complicated than that, but the short answer would be your first suggestion. The way I got into filmmaking isn't the way most people do today. It was different back then. We're talking the early 80s. I never went to school or took a class. I read books. I went to Hollywood because I wanted to do it professionally. Back then, you couldn't do it. I was living in North Carolina at that time. You couldn't even get people to show up on Saturday. <laughs> you know, people just wouldn't take it seriously. And with film, you have to take it. So I wanted to go to Hollywood and have people who were professional. Stewart had never made a movie, but he had been directing theater for 12 years in Chicago. So even though it was his first movie, he really wasn't first timer in a way. And certainly as a director, he wasn't. And I, you know, produced the first three movies that we did together, which was Reanimator, From Beyond, and Dolls. And Reanimator, I actually financed. So I borrowed the money and went way out on a limb. Once you're working on movies, on a movie set, probably half the people on that set kind of look at the director and go, gee, I think I could do that. <laughs> you sort of want to start making those decisions. It's crazy. You know, a director, they say, what, what color should this wall be? And you'd say, I think red. And they go, he, he wants red. He said red. It's like whatever you <laughs> is important and you get to make all these little choices and and so there is that most I, I bet if you talk to you know the head of the art department the VP so many people kind of look actors they go god I'd like to try direct the other thing was that at that point I started developing projects and you have to understand I was trying to make my living I wanted to make my living making movies that means you got to keep doing it Especially exactly. in the low end. I developed projects that then I couldn't get going because the director fell out. So one of them was a movie I called Dagon, which was an adaptation of Shadow Over Innsmouth. Stuart and I and Dennis had always mentioned, thought that'll be the sequel to Reanimator. Because I didn't think of a, I didn't think of a sequel as having to have the same characters. I just thought it would be like the Corman Poe series. So then, I had the whole thing financed in Wales, and when the time came to close the deal, Stuart had decided to stick with Empire to make Robo Robot Jobs, which is a movie that I had I was producing at the beginning, but I ended up in a lawsuit against Empire for monies not paid on Reanimator, and so then I left any projects with them. Stuart kept on, so that deal fell apart. But so that fell apart. Then I was working with Dan O'Bannon, who had um, who had directed Return of the Living Dead Terrific. and Alien. Yeah, he had an idea to, of about a movie called The Men about a a woman who discovers that all men are aliens. And so we all jumped into. I I was going to produce it. Dan was going to direct it. So at first it was going to be, well, how about if Stuart directs it, Dan writes it, and Dan said he wanted to direct it, 
Stuart said, no problem. And so Dan and I developed this thing for eight months. And when the time, and I found the financing and the time came to have the meeting to sign the papers, Dan backed out. So this was, you know, then there was the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which we had that all ready to go. I had moved down to Mexico to shoot it. We were weeks away from shooting and, and Stuart fell out for health reasons. And once that happened, then their insurance came in and we, a new director came on and all of a sudden he has his own producer. So, so you that, fell between the cracks. That meant that um, I had been going through all these projects and they were falling out because the director falls out and then you don't have a project. But I wasn't experienced enough. I was very, I mean, I was totally new to the business, completely with no preparation, bouncing into walls. Then, as you said, I kind of thought, well, I wouldn't mind directing. And I told myself, well, then I'll be the one-stop shop. So that's what I decided to do and found a friend who was making, had got financing from the Japanese to make some movies. He, I, he, I said, well, I want to direct one. And he said, I said, but I'll, I'll let you finance Bride of Reanimator. I'm going to direct it. I want to control, want to produce and direct, but it has to be a two-picture deal. We have to, that has to be the second one because I figured that being kind of a novice, my, I might direct a movie. It might be horrible. I might do a bad job because I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Thankfully, and, it didn't turn out that way. <laughs> well, but that was the fear. And I thought if I do that, it's like the French distributor once told me, he said, most directors make their first movie is two movies in one. Their first and their last. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I've got to be careful that I don't, um, that I have another chance. So I figured I'll do the other one first. Then I'll do Bride because I know they'll have to do Bride because they really want it. And so that way I've got two chances to kind of direct, not just one. So that was how. It all came together. And the other film, I'm assuming, would have been Society, correct? Oh, it was Society. So then once we made that two-picture deal, then I looked for a script. And this writer came up to me one day in the office. Here, look at my script, you know. And I read it. And it was the, the reason it struck me so why I jumped on it was because it had the same paranoia of the men. And okay, the men all right. Covers all men are aliens. It's everywhere. It look, everything looks normal, but it's not. And she's freaking out, and everybody thinks she's crazy. And so that feeling of of that when you scratch the surface of 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 the world of of our reality, there's some weirdness underneath. That that appealed to me. The, the original script of society had that. It didn't have the fantastic stuff. It didn't have the shunting and all that. And since I'm a, a real fan of... Uh, it had basically a blood sacrifice cult at the end. But I'm a fan of special effects. I've always liked the surrealism in art. I've always liked transformations in the movies from the time I was a kid. I just, you know, I always liked to watch the werewolf 
in stuff. Yeah. <laughs> in um, time lapse, you know, that's as good as it got back then. I was like the Ray Harryhausen and stuff. I like stuff with effects. And so I thought, I'm not going to, I get a chance to direct the movie. I'm not going to do it with just like blood sacrifice. It's got to have something weird. And so then and I was absolutely you nailed that. And we collaborated. We looked at, at Dali stuff and we said, let's do this. And we worked with the writer, Woody Keith, um, who, who it was sort of based on his life, kind of. <laughs> the movie. <laughs> He's from Beverly Hills and he kind of, and his partner, Rick Fry, kind of, um, kind of joined in with him. But we just, work together to incorporate these weird vision visuals that I thought what what would I like to see that I haven't seen in the movies and I thought well I'd like to see skin melding together so I imagine these two people upstairs in the mansion their skins are all melding together and then I said well how do you get that how do you how do you get to that point and so I just started back engineering the script so that it became, so that it became just sort of a big ironic take on <laughs> typical, you know, typical class politics and just to have fun with it, you know, and make it, it was kind of like making a new kind of monster. And I like that. Well, being that you were so new to the directing field, uh, I have kind of a two part question. The first part being, being that you had, I guess, uh, viewed the directing post from the producing perspective and had been on set so much, did you sort of learn the directing process sort of by osmosis of being around it? And secondly, what's the process of having to be the director and filming such outrageous special effects as opposed to maybe just a regular scene of two people talking? Because I have to imagine there's complications in the latter. Yeah, I think it's... I. I mean, I had made a amateur feature before I went to Hollywood. And that's what made me realize I wanted to find a director who knew what he was doing. So I had done, I had directed, I had directed things, but I didn't know about actors. It was sort of this weird, you know, I didn't know how, how do you talk to them? What do they do? really? And, um, and so when I um, was on the set, of, you know, when I worked with Stuart, I pretty much picked up, you know, I paid a lot of attention to his directing, not not for the not the the part of directing that is make this frame do this shot, this shot, uh, you know, you need a you know a close up or whatever. It wasn't that. That there's certain technical parts of directing that anybody can learn. But what Stuart knew how to do was tell stories with actors. And he knew how to talk to actors. He can act. And he, that's what he had done since high school. He'd been a director. And so I, that's what I, I, I tried to learn from that to know how to deal with actors. I still was not, I'm still not, I don't think I'm still all that good at it. You know, when it comes to shots and how you tell the tell things visually with a camera, 
that's that I feel very comfortable with. And I've always felt very comfortable with the facts. I always feel very comfortable with the effects guys, even though they often um, are very resentful of me because I'm <laughs> because I'm very hard to please sometimes. Um, and uh, you know, with the facts. And um, so that was kind of how it came about. It was by being on, by watching, by being on sets, by being in that world. And at one point, you just jump in the water and try to swim. I, I, most everybody does that. I guess in film school now, since everybody goes to film school now, I'm not sure. And you can watch YouTube videos to teach you anything. I'm not sure anything really prepares you for dealing with the actors except doing it. And it, and I think there's an aptitude that maybe is very difficult to teach. You, you know, you do have to, I now, of course, I've dealt with actors. I've directed so many movies and I've dealt with actors and sometimes successfully, sometimes not. Some people say the most important part of directing is casting. Because if you get good actors, you don't have to do much. But if you, but with somebody like Stewart, he could get inexperienced actors. He could bring out the best in the actors. He could get inexperienced actors. It wasn't like we were working with, you know, big names or anything. But Stewart to do it. And I watched that. And that's what I tried to. I tried, you know, I learned from him. I've learned, I've, I've produced probably 10 first time directors. And, um, I learn on all of them very quickly. I can predict how they're going to shoot a scene, except for one, Christophe Gahn, who I made Necronomicon and Crime Freeman with, the French guy. He wasn't very good about telling story with actors. But he, every shot, every scene was based on another movie. It was all about the frame. Everything yeah. was an homage to something. Everything referenced. Because he's a, he was a French critic. That's what they do. And he, I could never predict what he was going to do. Because often I didn't know his references. But when I'd find the reference, I'd see that he was basically making his scenes based on on other scenes. And I did, I did use that. I learned that from him. And the first movie I made after I did two movies with him, I directed The Dentist, which was a super Gordon Martin. Movie. Great movie. Yeah. And on that one, I did that. I was very careful about the framing. I was very careful about transitions. I planned every, you know, I planned every, every last and first shot of a transition of a scene, end of a scene, beginning of the next, wanted to make sure that I took into account how that was going to cut together. And when I had a, a killings, because I'd never done a movie that had body count before. And so I had, we had to kill all these people. The dentist had to. And so I actually just went to Hitchcock movies and copied scenes from Hitchcock. And they're right there, you know. And so that. That's something, that's another kind of way of doing it. You know, everybody comes up with their own system. And if you're lucky, like Stuart, he always basically, he was the most successful when he was basically dealing with actors 
he doesn't do a lot of like you don't he doesn't sign every frame and it's not pretend it's not like self-conscious about how he's shooting what he's all about is how the actors are telling he's allowing the actors to sell the scene well and he's 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 he doesn't he doesn't allow much (laughs) (laughs) he does he does but what i'm saying is that he doesn't let the actors change a word in the script. They can't change a word. Now, when I do it, I don't consider the script to be any kind of magic. I kind of want the act. A lot of times, I'm not, I don't, a scene, some dialogue, I'm really not that sold on. But the actor can solve it by their performance. Sometimes I want the actor to, to, um, give, you know, to, I'm open to suggestion. Of course, you want to do that before you're on the set. Stuart used to do lots of, lots of rehearsal. Well, when you're working as a producer, I could never ask the actors to come and rehearse for free. You could have them come over to dinner and then maybe read through the script, but you can't ask them that because you have to pay them for that. Whereas Stewart is a theater director, he doesn't even have that boundary. <laughs> He's gonna, he will ask, but then normally he was directing, not producing. Yeah. Normally I was producing and directing. So I was all, not only contracting, but also being the one working with him. And so, and then you have to be comfortable with doing all these, even if you, even if you have the actors to rehearse, you've got to know how to do it. And I think that's very awkward for, especially when you begin directing. I certainly did that. I mean, I certainly became, started doing that more and more. And especially when I worked in Indonesia, um, I did a, a movie called Amphibious there. I was living, I was, I did, I was trying to make a line of pictures in Jakarta and I did a movie, I did a movie, um, about a giant sea scorpion. And I, I needed these kids to live on this fishing platform. The whole thing takes place on a fishing platform in the middle of the sea. It's just out of bamboo, you know. They really yeah. have those places. And, and so I needed all these kids because they make kids do it. It's kind of like child labor. And I, the, the, you can't get an actor in, in Indonesia. The actors are terrible. And, the um so the casting director you you bring in kids from the schools they had to speak english and they were awful they just it was impossible to even imagine and so he went and got kids that actually didn't have any place to live there's a lot of people that don't live that live on the streets kind of in jakarta wow and and all these kids and we picked four of them or five and um we gave him a place to live and I kind of showed him how, explained to him how a movie is shot, taught him English enough so they could say their lines and rehearsed a lot with them so that they could do it. So I have gotten to that. I don't know how, it's easier when you're dealing with people who are totally ignorant, but if <laughs> I was having to deal with like, substantial actors, I'd be embarrassed. I would be feel like, oh, I'm not good enough. Or, you know, I don't know how to, you know, I, you know, I, it's, 
it's tough to set up those the the rehearsal if you're not i think you, when you come from theater you, that's what you do yeah and i think in in film school now they teach people how to do that there's they really teach them how to do it now some people will never be able to direct a movie because it's like well who's that basketball player that they were asking about whether he could teach a um whether he could teach whether whether this young um rookie that's really talented whether he'd be able to teach him how to play you know how to play in the nba and he says yeah i can teach him but i can't teach basketball iq some people just get the game and i think in film i've noticed it's the same because i have a with a partner we we often act as producers reps for people who are making you know micro budget movies from tennessee say right yeah <laughs> and they're going to shoot their damn movie and they'll contact me say well can you look at my movie and all this and I'll say, well, you know what? When you make another one, let me know ahead of time and I'll give you some advice. And then my partner and I, we will be a producer's rep and, and we'll help you make the deals for the, you know, for the, um, distribution and all this. And we'll help you make it more, more professional and maybe you'll get your money back. Cause if you make your money back, you can make a business out of it. But if you just go, you know, helter skelter, and you end up with something. <laughs> that, um, it's a it's a hobby, and I think people really want to have a, an audience for their movies. And you can't have an audience unless you're in the distribution system. Yeah. And if you're in the distribution system, it's got to bring money in, and that means probably you're going to make some money. So that's a business. I think most people they want to be in. They want to make movies and make money, not just have a, a hobby that nobody ever looks at. So anyway, we do we do that, but sometimes somebody will they'll shoot the hell out of stuff and but you get the feeling that no matter what you say on the script and the shooting level, you have the feeling that they they're just not gonna understand how you tell a story. What yeah. what constitutes revealing a story on film or tape or whatever it is, digital. And I think that's something that, um, that's maybe movie IQ. And I think maybe there is a part of movie IQ you can't teach. That some people can't learn, you know. But I think if you go to film school, you figure that out. Not that I'm, not that I promote <laughs> film school, I think. You should just make movies and take it seriously if you want to do that. But if you can go to film school, it's a great way to make contact. The main thing with film school, I think, is that it, it gives people a, a bunch of people who are doing the same thing they're doing that they can call on who are taking it seriously or, you know, and you're not just with your friends and you're the one that's kind of in the movies and the other guys into God knows what, you know. And a little earlier you had mentioned, um, about how the differences between how you know, Stuart would 
cast good actors and then maybe not have to do so much. Well, you have some carryover actors from Reanimator returning in this movie. And uh, I have to say, Jeffrey Combs and Bruce Abbott are absolutely phenomenal. They have great chemistry in the first movie, but I feel like their chemistry is almost even better in Bride of Reanimator because there's a... Uh, what am I trying to say? There's a familiarity between them because they've done this before. Now, uh, I'd like for you to confirm or deny this, but there was a rumor that Jeffrey Combs almost did not return from this movie because of a scheduling conflict. Is there any truth to this? And if he had not come back, did you have anybody in mind to fill the role of Dr. Herbert West? Yeah, it was, you know, the thing about Bride was, I mean, it's an, it's a typical movie story, um, but it sounds crazy. <laughs> and that is that in January of that year, I think it was 89, um, I was working on a script with Dennis Paoli and Stuart Gordon for, for Bride of Reanimator. And in that version, Herbert West and Dan Kane are working in a mortuary. <laughs> and the only character from that version that came over was the character that I was determined to have in the movie. And that was the finger eye creature. So <laughs> love it. Absolutely love it. I just wanted to have in a movie. And so I insisted on it. And that, but that was the only thing that carried over. And when my friends got the financing, it was, I mean, my, it was a company called Wild Street Pictures. And it was financed by Japanese. Back then, the Japanese kind of had all the money. And they were going to put up the money, but the money had to be, this production had to start in the first week of June. It was, I don't know why, but when money so talked. Quick turnover. So I talked to Stuart and Dennis and I said, look, we need this script because I've got to shoot in June. And Stuart said, no, we can't do it. It's going to take six months. Of course, he was also doing another project. And I said, I can't wait six months. And Stuart didn't see the sense in that. So I basically paid him and said, okay, I'm just going to move on. And I got the writers of Society and I called them over. <laughs> And and we um, started having late night meetings at my house <laughs> and we just came up with a whole new tape. I said, let's just start from the beginning and come up with a whole a whole new project. And in fact, we from I think it's February, March, April. Um, within a couple, two and a half or three months, we wrote the script. And. On and on May first was our first day of production, our pre, you know pre-production. Yeah. Wow. So we needed a script on May first, and then we had five weeks before we shot. And That's we crazy. basically it was the first draft, the first time we printed a draft was on May first. It was over. The people were in the office waiting for a script, and we were down at the copy center. <laughs> getting the copy, bring it in. And so the script is, there's a number of things we maybe didn't quite solve that, that are kind of goofy in the middle, you know, but it was, it's, it's 
kind of a first draft in a way. It's, you know, but I was determined to make the movie. And then, and sometimes you got to do it whether everything makes sense or not. And as we, so now we had to cast. We started casting and we had at the, the first scene, we were going to have the end of Reanimator where we see what happens when Meg comes back to life. Yeah. And so we, but Barbara Crampton didn't want to do it. I think it was, seemed too small for her, to her or something. But she didn't really, you know, she's doing something else. And Jeffrey and Bruce was on board. And even back in, in like March, David Gale called me up and said, Hey, I hear you're doing another reanimator. I said, yeah. He said, what's in it for me? That's what the actors always say. What's in it? <laughs> Who do I play? And I said, God, David, you know, your head was squished and thrown against the wall. I don't know. Your body blew up. And he said, hey, hey, no, no, no. I, I can come up with something. And I thought, man, he wants to do it. And yeah, that's some awesome. of the actors I'm contacting kind of aren't that enthusiastic. Now, Bruce was. Bruce was on board. And so Jeffrey was not going to do it. And I had to just decide, well, if Jeffrey's not going to do it, who's going to do it? So we'll start casting. And the guy that I kind of had in mind was, uh, I think it was the guy who played Petri in Society. Oh, really? Okay. So he would have been okay. He wouldn't have been Jeffrey Combs. But I would have just pressed through. I don't know. I had to do it. You know, yeah. I got to feed family, you know, and um, and so, but it didn't last long. Jeffrey decided he could, and he came on board and was a hundred percent in. And he and Bruce were just had a great time. Of course, I took a dip, and the scene we shot with a uh, another, you know, with Meg, we didn't use because one we had too many, we had too many. Um, Beginnings to the movie. <laughs> you know, we had there's a, there's a lot going on at the beginning, oh, so I can understand that. So we cut that one, you know, a lot because it was we didn't have Barbara, and that was just sort of the straw that breaks the back. Um, I wasn't completely crazy about the effect, but it was good, you know. Um, so we had all these openings for the movie, and we needed to strip them down. And so we stripped a lot. We stripped a couple scenes out and, um, we had a, um, you know, we just went forward. So we were driving, we were blasting forward on that movie and trying to figure out how to do it all at the same time. And, you know, one of the things that I did, of course, is Stuart liked to, he prefers to use effects that he can do on stage, you know, and I like, Back then, it was called green screen, and, you know, I like special effects, so I wanted special effects. So you notice with the finger eye creature, from one shot to another, it's like four different special effects, you know? It's just I absolutely love it. Motion, it's real fingers, it's a stop motion with a rear screen projection of the lab, uh, it's a pull toy, 
It's somebody holding a stick and doing that. <laughs> so one of the things I found with special effects was that if you, people always think they don't work. Well, they don't work. They're called special effects because usually they don't work. It's something you're trying to do that isn't normal. And so, but that doesn't, that doesn't bother me because I always figure you can find a way to make it work just for the camera, you know, just for that angle. And so I always learned that if you, you know, it's all made out of rubber, latex and methacellulose. I mean, that's back in the, in the eighties. That's what the guys did. They just like carved maquette. They carved things out of, out of clay, made a mold out of it, poured the mold with foam rubber. You know, they, they would make, make like the face of somebody out of stone, out of chalk. And then they would put, make the appliance and then they'd cook the appliance and they'd paint the appliance and then they'd put it on the guy. And, you know, so everything was done kind of like that. <clears throat> but so it never really looks that great. And the puppeting that really is the best puppeting is what really brings it to life. And, but I found that if it didn't look good, kind of put some goop on it. <laughs> and I then, got you that way. Get the camera down and put some goop on it and then throw in some smoke and some blinking lights. And is that maybe even a colored light? And then it starts looking okay. A little strobe and a, some goop and the, the goop is like reflecting and and it just looks better. And you just keep doing it until it looks like something for a few seconds. And so, but then, you know, I think that I just feel like you just keep, keep doing it. So I just wanted to have effects. And I found that if you mix up the style of the effect from shot to shot, if you do three of them, people, they quit figuring it out. Uh, so you're watch, cheating the eye. It's almost like a magician. You watch Harryhausen, and it is great. But you know it's stop motion. It's always stop motion. And so it's. I think it's better if you, not always, if it's a close-up. You know, when King Kong has to pick up the girl, it's a real hand. You know? Yeah. Not the, you know, but it's, you know, it's up to me. I would have King Kong in a suit in stop motion with puppets, but just do it different ways, and and you start losing track of how it was done, and you just buy it more. I mean, you know it's it's fake. You're not trying to fool somebody into think that really exists. You just want it. You you want them not to think about how it was done and just have fun with with what's there. So that was one thing I did was try to do more special effects. And the other thing I did is I wanted it to be more operatic. I wanted it to be grand, you know. So I made the laboratory with, um, I mean, with the art director. We thought, well, let's just build this laboratory, the basement. And to make it seem grand, you can't have a basement with great, uh, in a great hall. But if you put big, heavy timbers above, it makes it seem like something, you know. And we did this. Sets were designed for each shot. And I even, I, you know, instead of having Jeffrey and Bruce be all so, so well shorn, so, you know, I thought they'd been to war. Bruce, I put him in a blouse. He's like 
kind of romantic kind of <laughs> let his hair be long, you know. And Jeffrey, I wanted to put a gun on his on his hip, you know, because I think West. I always thought West should have a gun, you know, <laughs> you know, and make him. And he his hair is even longer, so everything was a little, you know, there was a different a different point of view from that, you know. Well, one of the things I really like about the movie is that it, it it does have somewhat of a tonal shift a little more in the comedy direction and i wanted to ask you was this intentional to to make things a little more you know tongue-in-cheek and fun uh, as opposed to more of the occasional comedy in the first film yeah of course it was and actually the comedy in the first film um it wasn't really intentional Stewart never wanted it to be funny, but he is, he naturally is a funny guy. But not all his movies are funny. If you look at, um, Stuck, it's not funny, you know. But when we were making Reanimator, even working on the script, you know, um, the original script didn't have Dr. Hill in it. And then I read the stories. I said, hey, there's this guy that carries his head around. I want to see that. Because that's horror, right? Yeah. Horror movie has a headless guy and a head that talks. And, and so I thought, man, I want that. And so we brought that so that he was included as the bad guy. And I remember when we were discussing about the head giving head, as Dennis called it. <laughs> and we said, okay, he's, you know, he's headless, but What's he going to do to it? We said, well, the only thing he can, you know. And so that was <laughs> And to have a line like get a job in a sideshow. And those are funny lines. And, and we were having fun with it, you know, with, with the whole thing. And I think that, and, and I think that, you know, Stuart directed it that way. I mean, when you have the, the scene with the cat and then West says, look out, Dan. <laughs> and when Dan is scared, West laughs at him. Oh, that's funny. It, it's not done. It's done in a way that makes you laugh at the character. It's not done like it doesn't make you feel, God, he's just, it's not like Henry Ford yeah. serial killer. You know, I don't think Stewart could have directed Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer that way, because he would have just made it more ironic. I guess his Henry is um, is that King of the Ants. But King of the Ants has goofy stuff, you know. But it is pretty, pretty bleak. It's very bleak. Unlikable character. Um, you know. I don't think the, I don't think Stewart intended it to be funny. He said he didn't. He thought it was going to be scarier than it was. Well, a lot of people thought it was scary. We just didn't. I never thought it was scary, you know. But I thought it was a great, fun horror movie, which is what I like about horror, is when it's just entertaining, you know. And I think that, um, and after it, when we were doing From Beyond, I remember at one point Stewart said to me, you know, they really like the, the funny stuff in Reanimator. Let's make sure we put funny stuff in there. Okay. Going off the audience. 
What is the audience like? Dennis Paoli told me once, he said, you know, because he knew, he knew Stuart when they were kids, right? He was, he'd been with Stuart the whole, the whole ride in college and high school. And he said, you know, and they'd done plays and he said, you know, Stuart and I could have done anything. You just wanted to do horror. So we did, we did horror because I had the money. And it's not that they didn't have that project. They already had a script for a reanimator pilot then. And that's what we developed into the movie. It's not that Stuart couldn't do horror. It's just that he also did sci-fi and did comedy, did Bleacher Bums, which is a incredible play that he and his troupe did way back when they still plays. And, you know, I remember some of the projects he would show me. They'd be about cops and they'd be all these things. But but um, Dennis said, you're the guy that wanted to do horror. And then when I wanted to do horror, I wanted it to be hardcore. Because when we started shooting, I thought um, that I knew I decided not all, I, I, I love horror. I'm a fan. But I also know that it's horror fans are, you know, they will hang in there with you even if the movie's not real good. Like, I know I'm a horror fan because I love all movies, everything. You name it, I love it. But, like, give me a romantic comedy. It's got to be a real good one. It's not a real classic. I don't like it. I can't watch it. But with horror, I can watch dog shit and enjoy it. <laughs> because I'm a horror fan. That's, that's what tells me. I can watch some crappy, cheap thing and get a kick out of it. Boring thing, just get a kick out of it. So I, but I know that I've seen a lot of these horror, these independent horror movies, cheap horror movies, which is what Reanimator was. And I've seen that a lot of times they try to be respectable. Like they're worried about what their parents are going to think or I don't know what their neighbor or, you know, and I noticed that a lot of times those things they pull back on the exploitation. And I thought, man, that's the kiss of death because it's never going to be good enough for the mainstream. But if you don't ex put the exploitation, you're going to lose your the hardcore audience. And those are the people you can depend on. And so that was part of going into it. I said, let's go for let's go for broke with the exploitation, which was perfect because that's what Stuart likes to do anyway. <laughs> it's not like I was for it's not like I was really had to push. <laughs> um, my final question is actually sort of in the realm of what you were just saying. A lot of your films have a similarity in kind of pushing the boundaries, which as a horror fan, I absolutely love, especially being a you know younger when I saw these things. And you've said you know, the head giving head that was hysterical to me. I didn't really know why when I was seven, why it was funny, but it was. And uh, society is just nuts. And there are things in Bride Reanimator that are just uh, so bizarre. And, I know that uh, horror has always uh, kind of had a negative connotation when it comes to critics and uh, parent groups, church groups, and a lot of these films that you worked on, that the formative ones, are, are pre-social media. Well, now we live in a social media age where everything is held under a microscope, and there's Twitter mobs, and you know people are trying to retroactively call things out for being problematic. And I'm curious, uh, being that you're 
have had this creative position of bringing so many nightmares <laughs> to fruition, where do you stand on on this kind of pushback of people whose sensibilities are maybe shaken by the, the work you've done? I don't know. I, I, I'm not trying to defend, you know, spilling blood on in the movies, you know, bread and circus, you know, it's entertainment. I don't know. To me, it's very entertaining. When I was a kid, I loved horror movies. I loved ghost stories. I loved to read ghost stories, hear ghost stories, watch horror movies. Uh, they, and I watched everything else too, but I loved it. And it, it wasn't, you know, in a way you can say, you know, put the violence up on screen where it belongs, you know, people running the streets with automatic weapons kind of acting bullyish and that's pretty obscene <laughs> you know absolutely what, i mean this year has been terrible for things like that is, uh, it's just it's like a theme park ride you know it, you're totally safe it's all going to be okay i remember watching um a huge hit movie which was risky business with tom cruise it was with, with tom cruise and it was such a big hit and the critics loved it. Everybody loved it. And I always remember watching it and going, man, this kid is bringing hookers to his house and being a pimp to make money. And then the school he's trying to get into thinks that's good because that's what they need. Kind of done ironically, but people were digging. It was money, 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 you know, it was, and I'm kind of going, is it's really a fun movie, but part of me is kind of going, whoa, you know, this is interesting what's going on in our culture, you know, um, it's that greed is good thing. And there's a lot of that in the movies. It's like there's no, so yeah, I can see how you can, you can certainly pick apart all this stuff. And I'm, I guess I'm just glad that there wasn't social media during my time because I'm, I'm, you know, I don't really deal with it. I, I don't, I personally don't want to really be a public character at all. I don't want to, I don't want that. I don't want people to know what I'm eating, you know. Yeah. I don't want them to know where I am. Uh, I like to be able to have some kind of presence with fans of horror movies and stuff because I know what they're relating to and they like the stuff I like, and they like what I do, and I'd like to be somebody to them. I'll go on your thing, because I presume whoever watches it are probably, I like to watch, talk about Briar Reanimator. It's a hell of a lot of fun to me. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy it, and I hope that uh, the people that haven't uh, seen it will give it a shot after uh, hearing our conversation. Come on now to Mass by Lance, premium Friday the 13th custom-made hockey mask down there in Tennessee by Lance McKinney. Find him on Facebook and Instagram over at Mass by Lance. Go order one now, boy! Next Generation Wrestling brings some of the most talked about and star-studded professional wrestlers from around the world. Based out of East Tennessee, NGW is becoming one of the most sought-after independent wrestling promotions in the past four years. Witness NGW Live or on demand on the High Spots Wrestling Network streaming app. 
follow us on social media platforms at NextGenTN. Rain Army, it's time to throw on your Miskatonic University sweatshirt, grab your copy of the Cthulhu Mythos, and crack open a fresh vial of reagent. That's right, tonight we're going to tread the waters of HP Lovecraft. Well, kind of, but not really. The film that we're talking about tonight, well, it's a sequel to a movie that has its roots in the Lovecraft Mythos. This film, of course, that we're talking about in spotlight tonight is the 1990 graphically explicit, blood-soaked, mega-gross-out classic, Bride of Reanimator. Classic to some, bullshit to others, but we will cross that bridge when we come to it. I am your host, Brandon A. Lane, and my singular goal tonight is to convince the naysayers to give this film a second chance and outright convince those who have never seen it for whatever reason well, you need to check out this often forgotten sequel and give it a go. So let's hit the ground running. Bride of Reanimator was released in the United Kingdom July 8th, 1990, but it didn't see its uh, full uh, United States release until December 31st of that same year. New Year's Eve. Uh, odd time to release a film. Uh, it had an estimated budget of $2 million, and you can see every penny of it on screen. Amazing creature work that we're going to dissect in more detail a little later on. Now, the box office is where this gets interesting. I had to dive deep and uh, just crawl through the weeds to even get a number, so take this with a grain of salt because there's no guarantee this is 100% accurate, but I got the number of $2.2 million. Uh, not great. That means this movie had a, uh, a profit of $200,000. Now, I'm, I have to imagine when this got released on VHS that it made more, way, way more, uh, but uh, it had a limited window of opportunity to be in theaters, uh, and uh, this has to be seen as a as a loss. So, unfortunately, that is that is what it is. However, uh, IMDb has Bride of Reanimator ranked at a 6.3 out of 10, which I found surprising, because this film, for whatever reason, has somewhat of a neg negative connotation to it, which is uh, reflected in its Rotten Tomatoes score, 44% rotten, and its audience score is 45%. Uh, our friends at Shudder, a little more uh, how in line I would feel about it, 4.3 out of 5. I don't know that I would get, quite go that high, but that's definitely in the butter zone for me. And our, our Google users, as always, come through with the most accurate of numbers, 90%. Uh, for me, I would put it around the 85%, uh, but you know, at that point, you're just splitting hairs. On Fat Tony's hit list, we have 10 cold corpses, or sometimes they're a little warm because they've been reanimated. This also is a number that is contested because during that insane finale when you know the mausoleum is just closing in and the walls are crashing through on everybody, it's possible there are more dead bodies, but I was only able to confirm 10. Unless you include uh, Francesca's dog, which that would make it 11. And uh, I know some people hate, hate, hate seeing animals get killed on screen. Um, however, this is one of the uh, highlights of the film for me, and we'll talk about it when it uh, pops up. On Stank Dick Eddie's Titty Tally, this, this is one of the most strange numbers we've ever had in this. We have 1.5. So, Kathleen Kenmont, who plays our bride, you full-on see the glory of her titties that you did not see in Halloween 4. Damn you, Kelly Meeker. 
getting us all hot and bothered with cops do it by the book and them things just unfurled, but you don't see the nipples, which is exactly why we have a .5, because um, Francesca, the character who uh, is the love interest of Dan Kane, you see the boobies, but you don't see the nipples, so I gave it a half, a half rating on that. Um... So, moving on. Last month, during our three-year anniversary spectacular, we introduced a new segment where we took a look at other horror movies that came out in a particular year, and we broke down financially where our spotlighted film, which in case of this episode is Bride Reanimator, and where it would rank in terms of that year's box office. So let's check out Bride of Reanimator's Stiff Competition. So let's break it down. These are the films that came out in 1990. This isn't a comprehensive list. These are just the big ones that uh, you would more than likely have seen or heard of. Tremors, Tales from the Dark Side of the Movie, uh, Two Evil Eyes, Slumber Party Massacre 3, Nightbreed, Night of the Living Dead Remake, directed by Tom Savini. Great movie. Misery, uh, not exactly a horror film, but you know definitely in the horror thriller category. So it makes the list for me. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, which is available in our archives, so go check it out at JuicyCruder.com with uh, an interview with our good buddy Mick Strawn. Uh, Jacob's Ladder, which every uh, horror-based uh, survival video game has completely ripped off. <coughs> Silent Hill. <coughs> um, we got Gremlins 2. Uh, yet again, a little more in the, uh, the campy comedy category, but it's definitely of the same ilk genre film. Graveyard Shift. Uh, Frankenhooker, which is available in the archives as well, but don't listen to that episode. It's garbage. Uh, this is back before we knew what we were doing with this podcast. Uh, Frankenstein Unbound, very underrated. Uh, and when you're talking about underrated, this movie is celebrating its 30-year anniversary, and that being Exorcist 3. Absolutely banger of a film. And we have Child's Play 2. Now, before we talk about box office totals, uh, I figured it would be uh, instructive to relay the information that both it, the Tommy Lee Wallace miniseries, and Psycho 4, uh, they were both released this year, and they were both successful, but they were made for TV films, so they're ineligible, and so they, because they didn't have any box office returns. Otherwise, they would definitely be on this list. And bear in mind that uh, 1990 is that direct-to-video era, so we have a lot of other films that just went straight to video, and they're ineligible for this participation in stiff competition as well. So, I'm going to give you our top five, and uh, I'm going to ponder a question to the audience right now and uh, talk amongst yourselves to figure out your answer, um, but where do you think, based off of what I've told you, Bride Reanimator would say rank in the top five, or would it be in there at all? Well, let's break it down. Number five, Jacob's Ladder with $26.1 million. Coming in at number four, we have Child's Play 2 with uh, $35.8 million. Coming at number three, Exorcist 3 with $39 million. Coming at number two, Gremlins 2 with $41.5 million. And taking the top spot for 1990, as far as horror cinema goes, this is probably going to ruffle the feathers of some of you purists out there who don't think this is a horror movie, but I'm going to give it the top spot, because it earned it. That being Misery, $61.3 million. Um, so let's, let's let's break down the other numbers we have here. Tremors made $16 million, uh, a lot more than I actually thought it did. Uh, Tales of the Dark Side, the movie made $16.3 million. Two Evil Eyes, 
Woo! Didn't even make a million dollars. $349,618. Now, that's another movie I know did way better on VHS. Slumber Party Massacre 3, $1.2 million. Good for them. Good for them. Our, uh, our good buddy uh, who stopped by the Black Lodge to uh, participate in our People Under the Stairs episode, Jan Birch. He plays uh, a you know substantial role in that film as the, the creepy guy in the background. That's not a knock on that. He does that role very well. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 made $5.7 million. Uh, Grim, let's see, where are we talking Gremlins? Uh, Graveyard Shift, $11.6 million. Frankenhooker, and this is sad too, $205,068. Frankenhooker is a classic, and we're going to have to revisit that because I just did not do that movie justice. That's the first episode we did with fucking Judd Kelly. I know he hasn't been on the podcast in a while, but uh, he was intimidated in his uh, personality, which is so boastful and wonderful most of the time, just didn't come through in that. And to be honest with you, the uh, research, or <clears throat> lack thereof, just was not up to snuff with how I like to present these episodes. So you heard it here first. Sooner or later, we're going to do Frankenhooker again. Uh, another uh, Frankenstein-related film, Frankenstein Unbound, made $335,000 yet again. Ooh, big, big, big bomb. So let's, uh, uh, before we move on from this, I want, I want to say, in this year, we had three films that are Frankenstein-esque in their presentation. We have Bride of Reanimator, we have Frankenstein Unbound, and we have Frankenhooker. So I just want to know, what was in the water of 1989 leading into 1990, where everybody was kind of in the mood for some old-school stitch a lady together or stitch a man together and reanimate him kind of movie. I'm not exactly sure. I just thought that was interesting that there were so many in such a short span. Now, Brighter Reanimator was by no means the highest grossing film of 1990, but does support a legacy as a fan favorite among gorehounds. And that's a big uh, asterisk with it. This is why a lot of fans do like this movie and a lot of people don't. I know there's a, you know, a crossing line of you know what is good in a horror film, but uh, if you ask me, the over-the-top special effects in this movie are absolutely the star. And it's cemented its place in the pantheon of cult horror cinema, but before we can dissect the film at hand, we need to talk about the road that led to its production. So let's go from page to screen. So immediately following the success of 1985's Reanimator, several attempts to produce a sequel were made. Uh, one idea for a sequel involved Dan Kane, who is played by Bruce Abbott in in the original and this uh, film, uh, taking a job of a building superintendent as a cover to continue working on reanimating Meg Halsey, who was played by Barbara Crampton in, in the original film. And this would lead the government to discovering his whereabouts, and they would whisk him away to the White House, where he would be reunited with mad scientist Herbert West, and he would be instructed to reanimate the President of the United States. Now, if this premise sounds familiar, it's because during the George W. Bush presidency, it was nearly produced under the title House of Reanimator and would have been the fourth film in the series, following Beyond Reanimator, which less we say about it, the better. However, the decision was made uh, by former producer and now director Brian Usna and writers Woody Keith and Rick Fry to ground the narrative in a Kind of a twisted love story with frame, loosely based off of 1935's Bride of Reanimator. Great film, and definitely not a bad direction to take a Reanimator film in. 
And I like that this film kind of deviates uh, from... Because this movie isn't so much about reanimating. It's it's more about creating life, which is definitely in the Prometheus... Uh, Prometheus? The Prometheus uh, narrative of, you know, the novel of Frankenstein and, and a little bit in, in the films. But uh, that idea is uh, of creating life and kind of conquering, you know, mankind conquering God, in a sense, is... It's interesting direction to take it in. And there's some pontification of the Herbert West character, particularly in this film where he gets to, you know, monologue about, you know, God sits on his throne and doesn't do anything and he doesn't care about you and uh, I am the architect of life and great stuff, great stuff. Uh, so pre-production for Bride of Reanimator began in early 1989. Production on the film was scheduled to begin on June 5th, 1989 which left the filmmakers with less than a month to finalize the script. That is never a good sign when you have to rush the script. Now, we'll talk about the pacing issues and some of the things that could have been restructured, but uh, we'll just pin that for, for the moment. Uh, they had to finish hiring the cast and crew, get the special effects underway. Jeffrey Combs was initially not going to reprise his role as Herbert West due to a scheduling conflict. Uh, because he was always already booked to film in Italy for uh, Pit and the Pendulum, which is directed by the original reanimator director, Stuart Gordon. Great film, just got it on uh, Blu-ray from Full Moon. Great transfer. Um, thankfully, on May 25th, 1989, production of The Pit and the Pendulum was pushed back, and Combs was immediately cast to return to his most iconic role. So let's talk about that for a second. How... Do you make Reanimator without Jeffrey Combs? Uh, and I, I love uh, David Gale. I love Bruce Abbott. Um, and it's it's great to have Yuzna coming back. You know, going from the producer role to the directing seat. But how do you make this movie without your most iconic character or the the most iconic actor behind the character? To me, this was almost a situation where, you know, like Nightmare on Elm Street 2, where, where they cast a, a guy that wasn't Robert England, and thankfully, uh, cooler heads prevailed, and they swept that shit under the rug and got Robert back to save the sinking ship. I just, I love Jeffrey Combs so much, and he's such a consummate professional that you have to think... That, you know, he obviously he wanted to do this, so it wasn't beneath him. It wasn't a money issue. It was a scheduling issue. And I realized that, you know, you get these opportunities to make films, especially if you're taking your entire crew, you know, to other places and moving around. It's a money, a money is time situation. But to do this movie without Jeffrey Combs, I, I think they would have damned themselves to, you know, the bargain bin forever. And as good as the special effects are, uh, you need the characters in between to tie everything together. So I, I'm glad that they uh, there was a window of opportunity, and he did the movie. And you know Jeffrey Combs is on this wonderful ride of 1980s and 90s supremacy between you know horror films and Empire Pictures, and and then his stints on Star Trek. Uh, he's he's as iconic as the brand itself. So glad that they got Jeffrey Combs back into the role. Um, Broader Reanimator, while not a critical or financial success upon its release, Broader Reanimator was nominated for two uh, awards by the Academy of Science, Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films in 1991. It was nominated for a Saturn Award for Best Horror Film, and Jeffrey Combs, of course, was nominated for a Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actor. 
Um, I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, I don't know what one that year. I should probably should have looked that up. Number one, uh, fuck best supporting actor. He should have been up for best actor. Um, I know the, the the whole story really centers around Dan Kane. He's he's our lead, but fuck that noise. Uh, Jeffrey Jeffrey's the one doing all the heavy lifting when it comes to, you know, the performing end. And that's not a knock on Bruce Abbott in the least, but I think he should have been nominated for Best Actor because coming back into the role, he's he's a little more comfortable with it. He brings a lot of gravitas to what very well may be a weaker script, but he's definitely having fun. Um and the other thing is, like, if he was up for best supporting actor, fuck, he should have won it. I don't know. Who, I don't know who possibly could have in this in this year uh, given given a, a performance that would have outweighed the wonderfulness that is Jeffrey Combs. But I call foul, sir. I call foul. You went back to Brian Animator. In subsequent years, it's been somewhat reevaluated as somewhat of a minor comedy horror classic, and has been praised for its creative special effects. From its A-list team of gore wizards, and we're going to talk about them a little later. So let's read the synopsis. The mad Dr. West, Jeffrey Combs. The tormented Dr. Dan Kane, Bruce Abbott. And the beheaded villain, Dr. Carl Hill, David Gale, return in this blood-soaked sequel to Reanimator, the most deliriously outrageous horror movie of the decade. That may be an understatement. It's been eight months since the Miskatonic Massacre, uh, staying the hospital halls with blood, and Dr. West and Dan Kane's experiments have taken a bizarre turn. Now they have gone beyond reanimating the dead into the calm and realm of creating new life. The legs of a hooker, the womb of a virgin, are joined by the heart of Dan Kane's dead girlfriend. The bride is unleashed upon her mate in the climax of sensual horror. I don't know that I would say sensual. There, there's, some, uh, there's some definitely... Uh, sexual vibes going off during that uh, that end scene, but sensual is not really what comes to mind. <laughs> uh, you know, normally this would be the part of the retrospective where we'd break down all the cast and crew in detail, and don't worry, that isn't going to deviate from that formula. However, it'd be a good idea um, for you to go back into the, the archives and check out our Reanimator episode, because a lot of the principal characters are absolutely the same, You've got Brian Usna, Jeffrey Combs, Bruce Abbott, David Gale. Anyway, we give a whole big overview uh, of just H.P. Lovecraft as a whole. Um, so what I would like you to do, because you're not going to get it in this episode, uh, I want you to go back, if you want breakdowns of Jeffrey Combs and those guys in detail, I want you to go back in the archives, JuicyKruger.com, and check out that Reanimator episode, because that's one of the better episodes that me and Fat Fuck Scott have done together. We're still doing uh, running commentaries at the time, but we're starting to structure things where you're still getting a comprehensive, uh, in-depth, deep dive into those characters. Um, it, it's, it's impossible to review this film without discussing them, uh, but just be forewarned that... I'm going to do more of an overview than a deep dive on specific characters. Now, I'm going to try and go deeper with our new additions to the cast, but the majority of the talking points for this episode are going to focus on the real stars of Bride of Reanimator, and that being the kills and the amazing special effects. So first things first, let's briefly talk about our stars. Resuming the roles from the original Reanimator, we have Dr. Uh, Herbert West, played by Jeffrey Combs, with Bruce Abbott in the role of Dr. Dan Kane. 
And unfortunately, the underutilized David Gale gets to shine, but in a very, very small role compared to all the things he got to do in the original. He plays the role of Dr. Carl Hill. And, well, more specifically, the reanimated head of Dr. Carl Hill, one of the better aspects of the film. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is the chemistry between Jeffrey Combs and Bruce Abbott. It's pretty clear in the first film that they had lightning in the bottle because they they just they gelled together so well and they're they're so opposite of one another but they kind of complement each other in ways. I love in this film that Dan is he just he gets indignant and he just he wants to walk away so much but it just takes the slightest bit of you know that uh, methodical convincing from Herbert West to get him to come back. So it's he, there's almost a uh, pinky in the brain kind of quality between them. Um, not that I mean Bruce Abbott is not a moron like Pinky, but I mean I'm just saying like the the ability for him to talk him into anything it's it's definitely there. You really realize how important Bruce Abbott is to the series in this movie more so than in the first one. Uh, because the first film, you've got the great performances by David Gale and Jeffrey Combs, and then you've got Barbara Crampton in the mix. There's there's more set dressing as far as the actors go, but th this film without Barbara Crampton, um, her presence is you know omni. She's definitely uh, the driving force of the film, even though she's not in it. But that the whole heart, you know, Dan Kane wants the to utilize the heart to seemingly bring. Uh, Megan Halsey back, but you really, you really get a lot of, of Bruce Abbott in this film, showing what he can do uh, because he carries most of the narrative on his back. And uh, I just, I know I don't want to talk about Beyond Reanimator a lot. Every every film successively has has lost an element that made the first film great because you know you've got your three leads: Barbara Crampton, Jeffrey Combs, and Bruce Abbott, and you lose. Barbara Crampton in the sequel, but then you get to Re Brighter Reanimator and you've lost Dan Kane, Bruce Abbott as well, and they they need each other because it's the it's the sum of the whole. They just the the camaraderie that the, especially those two characters have in Jeffrey Combs and Bruce Abbott. You get they try to do that stuff in Beyond Reanimator and it just doesn't work because it's like a guy reading off a script and. The reactions that you get between those two characters, being uh, Dan Kane and Herbert West, is what makes their banter all the more satisfying. Because even if he doesn't agree with it, it's just the reactions to the shitty little snide things that that Herbert West says back to him, or the like the brief moments of like the humanity shining through West when Dan says something you know so wholly heartfelt. I, I they're they're great together, and that's one of the stronger aspects of Bride Reanimator is that you still have that core relationship. Now, the thing that this movie is lacking is we have no Barbara Crampton. She is so sorely missed in this movie, and that's not a knock on either of the female leads in this movie. But come on, you're not Barbara Crampton. Barbara Crampton. She's so angelic in the original film, and she serves all the purposes that the characters in this movie serve, but just in a way better manner. 
Uh, it's not a knock on those that we'll talk about them in a few moments, but I, I just, I, her, her, she, okay. So they shot an entirely different opening of this film and it didn't get used. And it's very similar to the ending of Reanimator where, you know, Megan Halsey is, you know, being given the reagent and it doesn't go well. But you would see added on to that, you have Dan Kane uh, given administer amid administering the reagent to a stand-in because Barbara Crampton decided she did not want to shoot this scene uh, because uh, her manager, I guess, had convinced her that it would be beneath her to just shoot a full-fledged cameo. And I think in subsequent years, she's probably regretted it just for the simple fact of getting everybody back together one last time. Uh, but, I mean, it would have been very, very short. And uh, then you would have Combs coming in, you know, of course, saying some smart-ass thing, you know, very uh, cold-hearted, no pun intended. But uh, her declining to do the film uh, definitely hurts it. It's a shame that they had that they killed her off at the at all in the first in the first movie because I think the magic is is those three. Um, I, I mentioned this a little earlier, but she is definitely omnipresent in the film, even though she's not physically there. The entire point is that you know Dan Dan is just rattled from the whole Miskatonic University, especially losing the love of his life. Not that uh, his Dick has been any uh, used any less in the meantime because he he gets down with some with some hot Italian babes and uh, even and you can even tell like it's it's like his head his uh his dick and his heart are split. Uh, he's he's given his dick to Francesca and he's given his heart to Gloria, but neither of them fill the void. So yeah, the driving force of the movie is is definitely it literally is Barbara Crampton's heart. Megan Halsey's heart is the driving force of the movie. Now, one of my favorite lines of dialogue from the film uh, has, you know, the, the great scenes where Wes is trying to convince Dan to continue work, and he his ace in the hole is Megan Halsey's heart that he got from the evidence locker, which I'm not really sure why an evidence locker would be at a, a hospital, but that's, you know, stretch your imagination to make it work. And Dan uh, is, he's reluctant and he kind of laments to Dr. West saying, well, what about the cops? And Herbert replies, the cops will never come here. Now, immediately following this exchange of dialogue, uh, Lieutenant Chapman rings the doorbell. I've seen this movie like 50 times and Bruce and Jeffrey's reaction at that moment that the doorbell rings makes me laugh every single time. Now, the comedy in Bright Reanimator is very broad. It's not... It doesn't always work, but every time that those two are on screen, they they are so funny. But and it's just reactions. And I know uh, that uh, the the hallmark of any good actor is not acting; it's reacting. And just the reactions that they give each other for their actions is just so funny. Uh, there's a part later on where Bruce uh, is reintroduced to to Francesca, and the the way the the shot is framed, uh, Bruce and Francesca are having a, a or I should say Dan Kane and Francesca are having this conversation, and then Herbert just kind of slides in uh, from the left or uh, from left into uh, the frame, just you know the very edge, 
and he says, don't let the little head rule the big head. And then he just walks off. And it little things like that just make me absolutely squeal with joy. And that's going back to why they're, they're so properly utilized with each other. However, I will say the one thing that is underutilized and not utilized to its potential is David Gale. Now, he steals the film, but he's in it so little that there are points in the movie where I completely forgot that he was even there. And that's not good. It's, it, it can be used as a good thing in a better script to kind of uh, forget about your antagonist. That way when they pop back up, you're like, oh shit. Um, but uh, he, he almost seems tacked on. And at one point, like uh, they weren't even going to have him in, in the movie. It was going to be a completely different circumstance and when david gale heard that they were producing this film he was like no you will put me in this movie and i believe it was brian usna who told him oh okay but you got to be a floating head <laughs> oh man uh, we'll get into the adding of the the bat wings and everything a little later on um but the the simple effect of a talking head um not the most spectacular of special effects, but man, it's it, it is so effective. And his his yeah, God, his just the way he stares off is so creepy. And he has his his dialogue is almost like out of something out of the nineteen twenties. You nincompoop. Very, very uh, Dick Dastardly uh, you know, twirling of the, the mustache, you know, tying a, a maiden to the railroad tracks kind of villain. But I, I absolutely, absolutely adore I adore him. So uh, moving on from our principal players, we have a few new fresh faces. And hot damn, what a face on our female lead. And I'm going to butcher her name. Fabiana Udinio as Francesca Danelli, a.k.a. Dan Kane's love interest. If you are of my age range, you know this woman uh, because you've, you've probably done things to yourself as a response to uh, her appearances in 1980s and 90s cinema. So let's break it down. She's in Hard Bodies 2, which was a fantastic, well, I don't know if it was a fantastic, but a, a sex comedy of the 1980s. She's in RoboCop 2, very, very briefly, blink and you'll miss. Uh, in the Army now, um, nobody wants to uh, sell the, the many merits of Polly Shore, but not the worst film he ever made. More... Um, more contemporarily, uh, people would know her as a, a lot of vagina in Austin Powers with Mike Myers, who was in Shrek with Eddie Murphy, who was in Training Places with Dan Aykroyd, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted. <laughs> and uh, most recently, she had a reoccurring role on Jane the Virgin. I've never seen it. Um, but, you know, there there's one other role that men of my age... Uh, will remember her uh, as, and that's the role of Anna Maria in Summer School. Now, I want to deviate just a moment to talk about Summer School. Not a horror movie, uh, just a fun 80s flick with Mark Harmon. Although, uh, oh man, I'm blanking on her name. Uh, she's uh, she's in Nightmare on Street 5. She's in uh, People Under the Stairs. We just talked about her a couple of months ago. But uh, yeah, she has a, she has a role in this film. But that's, that's not why I want to single out um, Fabiana in this, this role as Anna Maria. So, 
she's a foreign exchange student and she's going to summer school with these, you know, this, you know, cast of strange characters. But there are these two gentlemen who are die hard horror fans and they introduce her to the the wonders of horror cinema in particularly texas chainsaw massacre now this movie has so much like uh street cred with uh fans of like 1980s movies uh, in particular horror fans because of you know these these three characters because the idea that you could convert like the, a beautiful bombshell into uh, a horror fan was was as far-fetched, but you wanted to believe. You wanted to believe so much. She's very charismatic. You can't help but like her. She's she's very likable. But I feel like she is almost not necessary in uh, Bride Reanimator. Um, she's one of the weaker elements, and I hate to say that, because every time she's on screen, uh, she serves the movie be there to condemn someone for their uh, actions but I, I feel like she's absolutely underwritten and her narratively her her entire purpose in the film is to show up to react to bad things that are happening that's good because you always want a, a pretty girl screaming in your um, in your monster movies but I just I, I feel like they could have done a lot better now I'm going to talk a little more about her in this regard, in the writing category, when we get into our our next character, because Francesca isn't the only love interest our conflicted hero, hero has. We also have Kathleen Kinmont as Gloria slash the bride. Now, she's in Hard Bodies Part 1, so her and Fabiana um, share a couple of the same franchises, which is, you know, kind of interesting. Uh, uh, she's in Fraternity Vacation with Tim Robbins, and I don't know how I managed to, to bring this movie up so often, but uh, it is uh, something that gets brought up on the podcast from time to time. Stephen Jeffries and uh, Amanda Bierce from Fright Night are also in Fraternity Vacation. It's just a interesting coincidence. Uh, she was in 87 episodes of Renegade with her then-husband, Lorenzo Lamas. Side note, uh, they divorced halfway through that show, yeah, just continuing a working relationship, good on them, because that that can't be easy. Kathleen was in That Thing You Do with Tom Hanks, who may or may not be a pedophile. <clears throat> uh, he was in Apollo 13 with Kevin Bacon, who was in Wild Things with Bill Murray, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted again. And those roles aside, horror fans will remember her as the vixen, Kelly Meeker, who steals Brady away from Rachel in Halloween 4. You hussy cops do it by the book. Before we uh, talk about Kathleen, I have to go back to Kelly Meeker. What a fucking letdown that you have a woman in the sex scene of a movie with boobs that are that enormous and you tease showing them, but you don't. Halloween 4 is the blue balls entry of the franchise. I will stand by that to the day I die. <laughs> All right, let's talk about her importance to the role. Um, Gloria's character is, is she has uh, fatal disease, and I don't really go too deep into to what it is. But I mean, she's you know she's dying, and there's actually some nice allusions uh, in the dialogue to things that are going to happen uh, later. Dan comes in to you know to check on her, and he's like asking her, you know, saying that like she. 
she put on makeup and then tell her that she looks nice and uh, she says something along the lines of, well, my head is the only thing that isn't sick. Something along that lines. And then later on, her head is what is used to create the Bride of Reanimator. So I, I thought that was a nice little foreshadowing of events. Uh, good, good writing on that part. Her importance to the role is that she's, she's the stand-in for Meg in the physical form. And I love that Dan Kane has, he, there's this split allegiance between his dick and his, and his heart. He's a good doctor, and he cares about his patients, and he wants her not to die, but it's an, an inevitability. So when the opportunity to create the brighter reanimator, she's not even in his mind. He just doesn't want her to go. But Dr. West, Jeffrey Combs, he has that amazing way to convince Dan Kane to do anything. So uh, he looks at her face and uh, he's you know attracted to her, but it's Meg's heart that he loves. And that's going to definitely come into, into play later on. He's like, what do you want? When he rejects her and she rips her own heart out. Amazing, amazing stuff. Um, I feel like on an acting end, even though she doesn't have a lot to do in this movie, she's utilized way better than Fabiana. Every little thing she does ends up being, the ramifications are very big. I think that without Kathleen Kenmont, this movie would kind of fall flat. Because you, you could put another pretty actress in this role, and um, I just don't know that it would it would read as sympathetically as it does. It's all in her eyes. When she's laying there on the bed, um, you know, she's so frail and and has very little life, but uh, there's such a a connection just in the way that her eyes are, are telling you that, you know, she's scared. I mean, she does audibly say she's scared, but it's it's conveyed more in her eyes than anything else. Um, Dan Kane, being that she is the, the Meg character, uh, or the Meg uh, avatar, he, he has a, a, a need to keep her alive because he feels guilty for letting Meg die. And I wish that was highlighted a little more. I think they needed more scenes together, Dan and Gloria, before our big finale. And they're, they're, the middle section of this movie is, is a little thin, so I think they could have done more of that stuff. But at the same time, it probably would have separated from the the scenes that we get with Dan and uh, Jeffrey. Or Dan and Herbert. When I said earlier that this movie needed couple of rewrites uh, I th that may be an understatement I, I think th that you could take the character of Francesca and the character of Gloria and you could put them together now I love uh, Fabiana Eugenio she's beautiful and in that regard she's a better fit but I think Kathleen Kinmont should have been the whole of this story so you could have had her as being a doctor in Peru, which the beginning of the film takes place during a civil war, maybe um, she's injured in it. And uh, and then you have Dan Kane trying to keep her alive. Or maybe none of that happens and she shows back up and then she's uh, inadvertently injured during the whole uh, 
events of the film. Well, where wherever you have her get hurt, you know, you you build that love story. You you take her out. Um, she dies tragically, and then you have the need of Dan to reanimate her because he feels guilty. He's lost another love of his life. I think they just could have streamlined the story a little more, but I, I get why they did it the way they did it because they wanted a love triangle. And there is some great stuff towards the end of the film between uh, Fabiana and Kathleen where um, <laughs> as, as all the red flags are there for uh, for Fabiana to, to want nothing to do with, with Bruce Abbott's character. But, you know... I guess he slung her some good some good dick, and then she just can't she can't quit him. She, she kind of gets near him, and then uh, Kathleen Kenmon as the bride is like, "Get the fuck away from my man!" It's satisfying, but it, it, this movie has a strong beginning and a strong ending, and then the middle part needed some work. So yeah, I I is as fun as the the love triangle stuff is. I think you could have consolidated these two characters into one and got a more streamlined narrative and then you could have had more fun with your principal characters you know doing experiments and saying funny things back and forth but that's just my now one role that could have almost entirely been eliminated is the role of dr graves played by the longtime character actor mel stewart uh you've probably seen him in he was in car 54 where are you he's in a recurring character uh, best known as Henry Jefferson in uh, All in the Family, which uh, got spun off into the Jeffersons. And he was Billy in 89 episodes of Scarecrow and Mrs. King, which uh, does not include a female uh, wife of a king or a scarecrow. Fuck that show. Fuck that show. Fuck you, CBS. I was very disappointed as a kid because you hear, you hear Scarecrow and Mrs. King and you're like, fuck, this is, this is going to be awesome. It is not. So basically, uh, his entire uh, character could have been eliminated from the, the movie if not for the fact that he has arms. Because uh, basically, his entire necessity uh, going forward is is to act as Dr. Hill's hands. Now, he does uh, give some expository dialogue between him and uh, Dr. Uh, not Dr., but uh, Lieutenant Chapman about things that happened in the first movie, which I think is a, a necessity... Uh, in case you have somebody who's jumped aboard the sequel but didn't see the original. Um, but a lot of that stuff was done in the prologue as well. You're just you're fleshing out details. And I, in film, you're supposed to show, not say. So I feel like that they did a not a great job in utilizing this actor. And he's fine. He's a fine actor. And he has some good reactions. Uh, he, has a, he has a fight with a bat that he has reanimated. And uh, it's almost reminiscent of the first movie where you have uh, Combs who re reanimated the cat, and, and it's a puppet, and he's you know fighting with it. Um, but his his entire purpose is to just tell you things that you need to know, and literally be someone's hands. Our final new addition to the cast, in many ways, uh, becomes the film's real antagonist, and that's. Claude Earl Jones as Leslie Chapman. Now, he was the coach in 1981's Evil Speak, and he played Philby in Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, which I, hands down, is the greatest made-for-television horror movie ever made. And he also had some smaller roles in Dallas, Quantum Leap, Baywatch, and Matlock. Um, even though the investigation of the Miskatonic Massacre 
uh, from eight months before has uh, he's got a vested interest uh, in what happened. Now we'll get a curveball with that uh, a little a little later on, but it, it, initially you think his his motivations are pure because well his wife who had died had been reanimated and she is now in the mental ward of Miskatonic uh, Hospital when Francesca shows up. And they have the, what they call a meet cute between her and 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 Dan, and they make arrangements to have dinner that night. Uh, Chapman is just kind of hanging out at the hospital, looking for you know things out of the blue to to pounce upon. You know that, sl- that uh, sleuth kind of uh, motivation. Um, and he sees Francesca, and he's like, "Hey, come with me. I, I'm a I'm a police officer." And he takes her to the mental ward. And you've got the the surviving corpses of the first film, even though they're not actually in the first movie. But you have more reanimated bodies. And they're, you know, bouncing around in the, the padded cell. And for whatever reason, this cop can just go wherever he wants. And these are obviously dangerous patients. But I guess because maybe one of them is his wife, they're cool with it. And standards in the early 90s weren't what they are now. But they walk in there, and of course, his reanimated wife tries to attack um, Francesca uh, to no avail. Um, But the thing that kind of turns this all around, because at first you feel like, okay, this guy has a personal stake, and he he wants justice for his wife that he loves so dearly. But then you find out that his wife died from spousal abuse, and that revelation um, completely recontextualizes the entire movie. They're like, why is he doing this? They just needed him to do it. But I, I think the reason that they had this revelation is because even though what Dan Kane and Herbert West are doing is wrong, they're still the quote-unquote heroes of our film. So I thought that was kind of cheap. That they they had to paint this guy in in a they had to give him motivation to be around, but then they had to kind of well, but here's X Y and Z of why he's not the hero of the film. Now this guy's great in the role. He's he's not as good as uh, you know the the foils in the first film, but uh, that's a completely different subject. The things that make him just so you just you. Even if they didn't uh, have this revelation, you just don't like him. He's so fucking sleazy. Just the way he says his name, Chapman. I, I I don't like him. I don't like him at all. And uh, so I guess the, in in broad strokes, they did a good job of you know creating a, an antagonist you wanted to see get disposed. And we'll talk about his demise in, in a few. Um, you know whether. Uh, Chapman's actions make Dr. West or Dan Cain look like saints in comparison is kind of besides the point. Sooner or later, Chapman's actions are going to come back to bite him in the ass. <laughs> so let's not waste any time. Let's, uh, let's come what here, let, we're here what we came for. Let's talk about the blood and guts of Bride of Reanimator. Now, our first victim is either a Peruvian citizen caught in crossfire of a civil war, or he's a soldier very badly wounded in battle. Dr. West and Dr. Kane perform emergency surgery to save the man's life, but with no uh, no avail. Now, they try to remove this like huge chunk of shrapnel from his you know his chest, and he just he bleeds out. 
I gave it a 4 out of 10. Uh, the gushing blood looks great, but in terms of creativity, kind of low on the totem pole. Our second victim is actually our first. Only this time, Dr. West sees an opportunity to experiment on a fresh subject. He injects him with reagent, and this would be reagent version 2.0, which includes embryonic fluid from a species of iguana because it has regenerative properties. However, when the reanimated subject reacts in a violent manner, Dr. West puts a bullet between his eyes. Now, I'm all for someone shooting somebody in the head, but there is no blowback of the skull, and there's no muzzle flash from the gun. It's just a sound effect, so 1 out of 10. I I felt like that uh, was comparative to this movie like why that just didn't work and they could have done so much more with that uh, our third victim charges the medical tent uh, occupied by dr west and dr kane when he rushes the doctors he meets his bitter end at the end of a razor sharp machete wielded by dr kane he plants the machete in the back of his neck just deep enough to well just not deep enough to decapitate him which would have put it over the uh, edge for me Four out of ten. The impact is good, but I feel that a decapitation coming... I felt it was coming on, and I was let down that it didn't happen. Now, our fourth and fifth victims infiltrate the medical tent, only to be quickly dispensed with gunshots courtesy of Dr. West. Now, I ranked this one a little higher. Three out of ten, because the gunshots are more believable, but, yet again, still not very creative in the grand scheme of things. Now, here's a note. These first five victims... These all take place before the opening credits of the movie. So this movie has kind of, you know, has started with a gunshot. Like, literally. You've, you've got, you hit the ground running. Victim number six. Uh, Dr. West kills Dr. Or, uh, Lieutenant Chapman by inducing a heart attack with a rag soaked in chemicals. This is something they introduced a little earlier in the film uh, as a means of killing somebody without a trace. Uh, West does it on a, an iguana and he extracts the uh, its sac that has the embryonic fluid in it. So that whole thing uh, sets the wheels in motion for you to understand how this new reagent works, and then you get to see the rag actually utilized. That's So it, I guess it would be Chekhov's rag in this situation, as opposed to Chekhov's gun. Um, I gave it a 3 out of 10. It's by no means... Uh, you know, a great kill, but it is a means to an end. It does set up later for where he gets killed in reanimated form, which we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, the seventh death of the film will hit you right in the feels because you have Gloria succumbing to her illness as Dr. Kane holds her hand. Uh, I gave this a 6 out of 10. There's just there's nothing creative about this scene, but the... The reaction and the acting between Kathleen and Bruce, um, it, you just you get to see them really chomp the scenery. And for that reason alone, the death actually means something. Therefore, it should be held in a higher regard. So like I said, six out of ten. Our eighth and ninth victims are two nurses who are killed off screen. They escaped... Uh, you know, they were killed by the, uh, presumably at least, by the escaped reanimated patients in the mental ward of the hospital, and they've been telepathically summoned by Dr. Hill, which is one of the callbacks to the original film. 
Uh, three out of ten. The makeup is decent. There's the blood. Uh, you know the just the setting of the scene kind of sells you on the moment. But I had to I had to deduct points because it's off screen. Come on, we you don't watch these movies to to hear about somebody getting killed. You want to see it happen. All right, number ten on our list of victims is the titular bride herself, who through a painful process of tissue rejection sees her body body literally fall apart. Hands fall, arms sink, torso rips in two, and you've got that great methacellulose uh, goo in between, and it just drips. And then her, her neck stretches away from her body, and her slowly and painfully the head falls backwards, where the entirety of the spine follows. Ten out of ten. Visually stunning. And it's perfectly lit to show off how amazing the special effects work. Uh, of the crew, uh, one of the most spectacular things you'll ever see in a in a nineteen nineties uh, horror movie, definitely. But we're in that that great butter zone of like the late eighties, early nineties, where everything's still practical. You gotta love it. Now I'm guessing there is a subsect to the listening audience who is thinking to themselves that those kills are okay. But in comparison to the original, they're not as memorable. I might be inclined to agree with you, but the area where Brighter Reanimator really may be its, beat its predecessor is in the creature effects department. We're going to go down the line and discuss the amazing creature work, but first we've got to talk about the men who comprised this crew. Society also has a, an amazing uh, cast of characters, and this was a lot more prevalent back then where you just had all these guys who were going to become legends working together but i this it, I, come on having all these every one of these guys on the same movie is is just breathtaking when you look at their list of accomplishments greg nicotero howard berger robert kurtzman john carl beekler nick benson and screaming mad george okay oh uh, Obviously, Nicotero, Berger, and Kurtzman, that's, that's K and B. Um, the dominant force in special effects in the, the post-digital um, era. I mean, they're still keeping things going. I mean, like, all the way, let's talk about Nicotero. I mean, Walking Dead, uh, the only positive thing I can say about the show is, is his effects. Um, past that first season, it's not really my, my cup of tea, but... Uh, you know, Berger and Kurtzman, uh, they're not slouches either. Uh, John Carl Beekler, who is probably the most talked about uh, special effects artist in the history of this podcast, just because everything we talk about has some connection to him. We just lost him not long ago, but he, uh, man, uh, omnipresent, absolutely omnipresent. And uh, he, he made the, the uh, head, the bat prop of uh, Carl Hill, who uh, the animatronic of it, you know, working. And that's just, <laughs> how do you not love that? Um, Nick Benson, who uh, did preliminary work with uh, Screaming Mad George. Uh, shout out to Nick Benson. Um, worked on Nightmare on Street 4, Night of the Demons. Uh, very, very talented guy. And Screaming Mad George, who uh, worked on Society and several other great films of the era. When you take into consideration all these guys and their their individual legacies and the fact that they all worked on the exact same movie at the same time, that can't be understated. That's an amazing, amazing achievement in special effects. You know, and 
So let's just let's break them down. The Wizards of Gore, they're all well known in their in their field, despite the fact that some of them may have separately be known for other films. But collectively, Brighter Reanimator may be in a class of it on its own. So number one, Dr. West constructs an abomination made entirely from discarded fingers and an eyeball. It springs to life, it strolls around the living room while the doctors are being interrogated by Lieutenant Chapman. The, the finger, the eyeball, albeit gross as fuck, it, it's seemingly docile, and it's actually gross in still a kind of a cute way, which just makes his death all the more funny because he gets accidentally squished by a book by Lieutenant Chapman. And there's a whole cat and mouse element of that scene of, you know, of Dan Kane and Herbert West seeing the effect going on and the little eyeball-fingered guy, but and Chapman doesn't see it. And then Chapman picks up this book and just slams it on him, and uh, that's that's the end of that whole thing. It's very reminiscent of Evil Dead 2, and in my book, that is never a bad thing. 9 out of 10. Very creative and puppeted effectively and realistically. Uh, number 2 effect... Uh, Dr. Graves, in an effort to identify the reagent uh, left after the Miskatonic Massacre, successfully reanimates a bat. Um, three out of ten. It's funny, but it's not super convincing. Uh, the the fight he has with the bat, however, is absolute gold, and the, that's one of the hallmarks of a reanimator film. You have to have somebody fighting with a puppet or a stuffed animal of some kind. Uh, number three, the successful reanimation of the bat by Dr. Graves leads him to revive the deca decapitated head of Dr. Hill, only to be recently discovered by Lieutenant Chapman from a sideshow carnival just outside of Arkham. Nevertheless, Dr. Hill's head is resurrected and is out for revenge. Um, nine out of ten, incredibly simple old-school magic tricks, uh, but it looks effective, and it's even better in this movie than in the original. It's literally just a guy with his head through a table, and there's a prosthetic flap, you know, to hide the seam, or the seam being, you know, where the table stops and uh, the head starts. Nine out of ten. Great, great stuff. Number four, an effect that is very reminiscent of Evil Dead 2, another one, sees Dr. West take a steel rod and stab one end into a detached foot and the other into a severed arm, and they're they're both reanimated. Um, seven out of ten. There's no mystery as to how they achieve this effect, but it does the trick. Also, as good as the effect is, you have to give some credit to Jeffrey Combs for his acting with the props because his reaction to being strangled and kicked in the face is absolutely priceless. Uh, number five. Shortly after Lieutenant Chapman is reanimated, a crazed brawl ensues in the basement, uh, Dr. West and Dan Kane's home. It's like this uh, old uh, mausoleum out by the cemetery. Uh However, Dr. West fights back with a machete and manages to chop off the right arm of Lieutenant Chapman. And to beat all, Chapman manages to cauterize this wound with an open flame in one fell swoop. Um, I'll, I'll, give this, uh, I'll give this a 5 out of 10. Uh, interesting, but comparatively to some of the other things in the, in the movie, uh, there's definitely better things to come. Number six, the reanimated Lieutenant Chapman seizes Francesca's dog and just ragdolls the fuck out of it. Like I said, Hallmark, you have to have somebody fighting with a stuffed animal. <laughs> Needless to say, it's dead. Dr. West just can't help himself and he reanimates the dog and needlessly adds a human arm to it. Which I think is a, a, a really funny visual gag, you know, because I trained the dog, like I shake hands and it'll bring its paw up. 
And um, he's standing in a doorway, and Francesca comes down, and uh, the dog extends its human hand, and she, of course, she just freaks the fuck out, which is half of her entire character in the film is just to freak the fuck out. Uh, six out of ten, incredibly goofy, but in a movie like this, it's so damn enjoyable. Uh, number seven, the fruit of Dan Kane and Herbert West Labor, the bride of Reanimator, crafted from the feet of a ballet dancer, the legs of a street prostitute, the womb of a virgin, the arms of a waitress, uh, the hand of a lawyer, and the other hand is of an artist, the heart of Meg Halsey, and the head of Gloria. Ten out of ten. There's no way to properly articulate how impressive a makeup job it is. It just simply has to be seen. Uh, I want to say it took them like ten hours to put this on her, and they got it down to I think maybe like six, but cast her entire body. This is not a a makeup job that you can take lightly. I mean, this is an entire body prosthesis. And I, the, the other thing that's interesting about it is the medical gauze around her to both serves as a means to kind of hide the seams in places, but it also works as a, you know, a bridal gown. And I, I know that was obviously intentional, but it, it it's not intentional in the sense that uh, it wouldn't look that way naturally. So I thought that was a nice visual cue that she is the bride of Reanimator, you know, in literal and figurative terms. Amazing. Uh, KMB did all that, so hats off to them. At number eight, we have the evolution of the severed head of Dr. Hill. Now having bat wings grafted to it, giving him the ability of flight. Now, aside from the fact that it's just fun visually my favorite aspect of it comes from how dr west discovers it so he answers the door and there's just a box sitting on the doorstep and he opens it up and a severed head with bat wings is in it nine out of ten corny as fuck but i absolutely love it the it's a great use of old school you know rear projection or it may be composite i'm not exactly sure how they achieved it but uh, it definitely looks a little hokey you see the the black you know, mat lines around the props sometimes. But then, come on. I mean, it, it, it is of its time, but it just in context, it's so enjoyable. You, you can't help but love it. Number nine, another one of Dr. West's mad experiments comes back to cause problems for him when the monstrosity of a reanimated head that has a foot and an arm grafted to it shows up in the mausoleum at the command of Dr. Hill. Um, 8 out of 10. It's odd, but it looks great. This is something that you would see in a uh, Frank Henenlotter movie. It very, harkening back to, to uh, Frank and Hooker, same year. Uh, very, very similar. Number number 10. The torso of a reanimated man and a woman are stitched together. Kind of like uh, the kid, uh, not the kid, but the uh, human version of Cat Dog. Um, this, this is a great effect. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how they achieved it. Uh, 10 out of 10, uh, by 2020 standards, it still gets my seal of, of approval. And last, but certainly not least, one of the final, uh, abnormal pairings of a male and a female body, uh, vertically have been put together back to back. This is a seven out of 10. I would have ranked this higher if not for the fact that the prop is static on one side and it has motion on the other. Now, Screaming Mad George made this prop, and the cool thing about it is it's almost the exact same prop 
or the idea of a prop that he used in society. Because there's this part where a body comes out of bed and turns around and it's, you know, face on both sides. Uh, this is a little more gruesome, but I think I actually prefer the effect in society um, because the fact that when... In this movie, you get the the non-moving side first, and then it turns around, then you get the, the actor portrayal. I don't know. Your eye has enough time to adjust and see that it's an effect. Um, but it's still, still a really great effect. I don't want to sell it short. But in the grand scheme of things, uh, comparatively, uh, it, it could have been a little better. Gotta be honest with you guys, there's not really much more to go into with Bride Reanimator. However, we did get quite a few fan questions this month, so let's break it down in our mailbag. <clears throat> this first question comes from Matt Underwood. If, Reanim if the Reanimator series were to ever be remade, who would you cast as Herbert West? If the subject matter is taken more seriously, like a serious tone, uh, then I think uh, Matthew Gray Goobler from Criminal Minds. Uh, he plays a character called Spencer Reed. Uh, I think he would be really good in the role. You could get him to do like the techno babble, and uh, I, I just think that aesthetically you could uh, kind of make him look like Herbert West. However, if the series were rebooted in a more tongue-in-cheek tone, and my definitely hanging its hat on the comedic side, then my hands down, it's got to be John Hamm. I think he would absolutely kill it as Herbert West. Yeah, pun intended, by the way. Um, he's a solid actor all around, but I think he's proven in the past few years that he's a natural at comedy. Um, Bridesmaids, he's really funny in that. Uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, he has a recurring role as a kind of a cult leader who kept these women down in a bunker. Um, but he, he's really funny, so I think that he could add a lot in that regard, and I could just see him with the glasses the the problem with this and, and 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 to who you would ask it may be a minor or a major problem is that he's dude's like handsome as fuck like you know Don Draper you know I mean that that dude's not known for being a, an uggo the character of Dan Kane ideally should be the more attractive of the two he's the ladies man he's the one you know betting all the ladies but I don't know you can maybe have fun with that that uh, that all the women want to get with Herbert West even though he's like a super creep. I don't know. There, there's uh, there's some fun to be had there. But that that's be my answer. Uh, either Matthew Gray Goobler or, if you want to go in a more comedic route, John Hamm. Now, this question comes from Mike Wilson. I'm a big fan of Brian Yusen's work as a director, and I feel like he's constantly overshadowed by the other horror directors of the 80s and 90s. Why do you think that is? Well, I kind of think you answered your own question. Unfortunately, the 80s and 90s were just so jam-packed with genre-specific filmmakers that Brian's work is just lost in the mix. Uh, the films he directed are, or can be, a little more on the extreme side. I think he's kind of unintentionally boxed out a portion of horror audiences who don't care for like body horror and like extreme gore. The, the other aspect being he was primarily a producer, which I think he is held in a more high regard in, in that end. That's not to say that I think he's a bad director. I, I think he's a great director. Um, I'll say this. I think he's very underrated as a director, and the genre would be, would be worse off without him. You're never going to uh, proselytize the, the general audience on you know, B-movie cinema too much. 
this question comes from Adam Parton. I've never liked Brighter Reanimator because it's just too goofy. I prefer the first film where the comedy came exclusively from the performances rather than the poorly written dialogue. Do you think this movie would be better if it was closer to the original? And I'm assuming by when you mean closer to the original, you mean tonally. The first movie does play a little more straightforward than the sequel, but I think to call Bride goofy and insinuate that part one isn't is being a little ridiculous. We're talking about a movie where a man has a fight with a stuffed cat. So come on. I think Bride could probably have used uh, several rewrites on the script just to tighten the narrative, but the comedy works for me. Um, but I admittedly may be in the minority on that. But I, I don't think that Bride uh, suffers from its comedy. It just suffers from a weaker script in general. Okay, this our final question um, comes from Titty Flippin' Travis, and uh, you know it's gonna be you know it's gonna be bizarre. Do you think the Bride would have been happier with a removable dick and a pussy so she could ple pleasure herself instead of seeking pleasure from someone that doesn't love her back? Could have saved a life. Well, uh, the issue that uh, the bride ultimately succumbs to is the tissue, you know, rejection. So I, I would have to think that I mean, if she's uh, plugging new body parts, you know, uh, with other body parts, that that may uh, just have sped up the process. I don't know. I'm not my uh, not my place to judge. <laughs> oh man, you can always count on Titty flipping Travis to ask something so ridiculous you can't help but just laugh. Uh, with that being said, I, I hope these retrospectives are, are bringing you all uh, out there in the Ran Army some enjoyment, or at the very least, a nice chuckle. Considering all the horrible shit going on in the world, Lord knows we could all use a good laugh right now. So if you'd like to laugh and learn a little more, please follow us on social media at Rants Black Lodge. Subscribe to the podcast, that being the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast, on one of the many platforms we're av available on, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Player FM, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and on down the list. Don't forget to stop by our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. And for the love of Cthulhu, please consider buying a t-shirt or a mug from our web store at Rant army.com that's going to close us out for this month but stay tuned next month is october so you know we got something extra special in store till then ran army keep marching